very excited about continuing our study of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, maybe you saw what we're talking about and saw these three Old Testament history books and thought, oh boy, it's going to be a long quarter. So I hope by the end of the quarter you'll find that you've learned a lot and understand the history of Israel, which is our history, and uh, you've seen how it relates to Jesus Christ, which is how we should read all parts of the Bible, including these three books. To highlight the significance of them in the story of Christ, we've talked about it in terms of restoration, God restoring his people back to their homeland after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. That didn't happen all at once, but it happened in four phases marked by four great leaders. We're still in phase one, led by Zerubbabel, the governor picked by the king of Persia to come. And uh, he led the phase we're calling the restoration of worship, chapters one through six of Ezra. Phase two was led by Ezra himself when we had the restoration of the law, Ezra 7 through 10. Phase three was led by Nehemiah, the restoration of the city. They built the walls. That's the book of Nehemiah. And then Esther, who never visited Jerusalem, so far as we know, was playing a role with her, her relative Mordecai. And that was the role of restoring honor to the name of the Jews. And that's covered by the book of Esther. This is the whole story, so I hope that we can get through all these books and, and uh, see the significance of each and every one of them. Tonight, we're finishing up that phase one, the restoration of worship. Last week, we started with the return to worship, and we finished tonight speaking of the rebuilding of worship. And what's really being rebuilt here is the temple. You know, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And it was reduced to rubble. There was nothing left of that grand temple built by Solomon. Now, here's a test question to see how smart you guys are. Can anybody tell me how long it took Solomon to build the first temple in Jerusalem? 13 years. I thought it was seven. Okay, were you just taking a guess? I was starting to question my number, but I, I had seven, 13. <laughs> it depends on who you're talking to. Now, this group that comes in, does anybody want to take a guess how long it took Zerubbabel's people to build what is known today as the second temple? No, higher. More than seven. That's right, 22 years. 22 years, 16 of which they were doing absolutely nothing. So this is the story of those 22 years it took them to build a temple back in Jerusalem and what held them up and why it was so hard. Now, part of the answer to this is that it's harder to rebuild than to build. And if you've ever been involved in construction or you're a homeowner, you know that. It's harder to rebuild than to build from scratch because whenever you go in to rebuild, there's a history there and there are, there's a past full of problems. Whenever you build new, you, you build up from scratch. You have control over everything, right? But when you go in to rebuild and remodel, you're, you're building on the past work of somebody else, the scars of the mistakes that were made. 
you're, you're building on the face of all kinds of things. And the Jews, they went back facing things their forebears did not have to face, like pessimism, persecution, fear of war and death, and a general discouragement that followed closely on the heels of victory. As difficult, though, as it is, rebuilding is a very, very important work. And sometimes I don't think we give it enough credit. Uh, we concentrate a lot on spiritual renewal, but not enough. Uh, we would prefer to think of ourselves as conducting evangelism, which is important, uh, when God makes someone a new creation. And uh, we don't talk as much about spiritual restoration, taking what has been built and what has been torn down and building it spiritually back again. But the Bible says this is very important work. For example, look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Peter there says that for a believer who becomes entangled again in the defilements of the world, the last state has become worse for him than the first. And he goes on to say that it would be better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, if I'm reading that correctly, in some way, and I'm not sure exactly what, but in some way, the Christian who falls away has gotten into worse shape than he was in before he ever obeyed the gospel. That means it's very important for the church to reach out to these people who've fallen away and bring them back to the Lord. Look how James puts it. He puts a positive spin on spiritual restoration at the very end of his letter, James 5, 19 and 20. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So should the church be concerned about spiritual uh, restoration? Yes. Very important. Souls are at stake with the Christians who've fallen away as much as they are at stake with those who are lost and have never obeyed the gospel in their lives. We need to be working on both fronts and working with all our might. And there is an analogy to that in what Zerubbabel and the Jews are doing as they have come back to Jerusalem. They've returned for worship. Now they need the structures that they had under the old covenant to scripturally worship God again. And so we'll look at that in three points. The first point is rebuilding the altar. This is the first thing that they did. That altar for burnt offerings that rested in the courtyard in front of the temple, that was the only place they were allowed to give their burnt offerings. So it's very important to build it according to the instructions in the law of Moses, which you find in Exodus and in other places as well. Now, there was a harmonious cooperative spirit among the Jews when they started this first phase of building back worship. Uh, it is said that they gathered together as one. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, the people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. The New American Standard Version says in verse 9, they stood united. And this was due to two factors. Okay, two important factors brought them together. The first is strong leadership. And we've mentioned Zerubbabel before. He was the appointed governor of the Jews who went back. Zerubbabel was of the Davidic line, so he is an ancestor of the Messiah, a very important figure 
in Old Testament history, especially here in the days uh, preceding Ezra. Also, alongside of him was Jeshua, the high priest. And he too was a very capable leader and someone who stirred the people up spiritually. And so these men, along with Levites mentioned in verse 8, who supervised the work of the house of the Lord, all of them were very important in bringing the people together. You cannot bring a group of people together without strong spiritual leadership. That is true of churches and any other organization. The second thing that was very important for their unity was reliance on the word of God. Now let's look at Ezra chapter 3, several verses here. Starting in verse 2, which says, They built the altar of the God of Israel as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. There were specific instructions. Um, if you go back and look at the picture there uh, that I had up, uh, they were to have the horns. They were to have certain dimensions. Uh, the altar was to have a grate on it. Uh, it had um, rings on it to be carried by poles. And all of these dimensions and materials were laid out in the law of Moses and they were to be followed to a T. And so they consulted the word of God, found the instructions. If we wanted to build a replica of it today, we could look in the same instructions they had and build the replica. Although the purpose for it, of course, has passed away in the advent of Jesus Christ. But going back to Ezra 3, the altar was set in its place, verse 3, which means it was put where it, was, where it belonged there in the courtyard in front of the temple where the temple would go. Then they celebrated the Feast of Booths as it was written in verse 4, according to the rule as each day required. They offered daily sacrifices. So they started looking at the calendar again and following what the law told them to do on each day. They celebrated appointed feasts of the Lord, verse 5. Their praise to the Lord God, verse 10, followed the directions of David, king of Israel, who was a prophet. After the job was finished, the elders realized they had been successful through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah and by the decree of the God of Israel. That's chapter 6, verse 14. So those prophets will come back to them in a moment. But they were very important too, speaking by inspiration of the people, telling them how to do the work. Even the priesthood was organized correctly. Verse 18 of chapter 6 says they were organized as it is written in the book of Moses. This is why they were so united. They had strong leaders and they relied on the word of God. Look, this is the only way God's people can get together is if they decide to follow the word of God and speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the Bible is silent. We're talking about restoration this quarter and uh, we often speak of our history and uh, speak of the restoration movement. And hopefully you know a little bit about that. We've had classes on that here. And maybe you recognize some of the individuals who led this movement back in the 19th century, one being Thomas Campbell, the father of Alexander Campbell. Thomas Campbell, he was very frustrated with the division in Christian religion in his home in Scotland. He was a Presbyterian. And he was frustrated as an itinerant preacher because he wasn't allowed to serve communion at different sects of the Presbyterian church. So it wasn't just that he couldn't interact and fellowship with members of totally different denominations, but even within the Presbyterian church, he was barred from going in and serving communion uh, of 
types of Presbyterian churches different from the one that he was a member of. And this frustrated him deeply. And when he came before his family over to the United States, he started thinking more deeply about these matters and about unity, and it was on his heart. And he wrote a document, a very important document, called the Declaration and Address. I want to share with you a couple of uh, excerpts from the Declaration and Address. Here's one, which says, The New Testament is as perfect a constitution for the worship, discipline, and government of the New Testament church, and as perfect a rule for the particular duties of its members as the Old Testament was for the Old Testament church. Don't stumble over his word church in relation to the Old Testament. He's drawing an analogy here between Israel or these Jews that come back. How did they know what to do when they came back to Jerusalem? They opened the law of Moses. And they knew they could be Israel again just by following the law of Moses. And Thomas Campbell is saying the New Testament will do the same thing for the New Testament church that the Old Testament did for Ezra and those Jews back in those days. Here's another excerpt. When the scriptures are silent as to the express time or manner of performance, if any such there be, no human authority has power to interfere in order to supply the supposed deficiency by making laws for the church. We speak where the Bible speaks, remain silent where the Bible is silent, and we can have unity. And we see this reflected here as they rebuilt the altar. It had been 50 years since any sacrifices had been made in Jerusalem on the altar for burnt offering because when Nebuchadnezzar's armies finally made their last sweep through the city, they destroyed the altar that Solomon had built. There was no place to offer those animal sacrifices any longer. And now they had rebuilt it. They could offer burnt offerings again. So a very exciting time. Now we come to the second phase of building rebuilding the foundation. They built the altar. Now it's time to build a foundation for the temple. They had this unified spirit. They had liberal generosity, wise delegation, a cooperative effort. And because of all that, they were able to lay the foundation of the temple in just six months. So we're headed towards the estimate that Jackie gave a minute ago. It looks like maybe we're going to get done with this thing in a year. But we'll see what happens later on. They run into some opposition. Now, they start to have their first problems once this foundation is laid. Uh, have you ever built a house or had a house built? Do you remember going out and looking at the foundation right after it's been laid, whether it's a slab or crawl space or whatever? I remember when I was, I was young, um, Dad was building a house. We'd purchase some property. And he had this house built, and they, they laid a slab down. In that part of Texas, all the houses are built on slabs. I remember going out there and looking, standing on it and thinking, is our whole family going to live in this? It just looks so small. Without the walls and the roof, for some reason, the foundation just looks smaller. I don't know if that's just me or if you've noticed that as well. Back in the days of Ezra, the people felt the same way. Now, remember what I said. There was a 70-year captivity. I don't want to confuse you. The Babylonian exile took place in phases just like the rebuilding stage. So the 70 years are from like 606 to 536, but the temple wasn't destroyed until 586. So that's only 50 years from the destruction of the temple to the reconstruction of the temple, which means it occurred during the lifetimes of some of the people 
who returned with uh, Zerubbabel in this first phase of rebuilding. They remembered Solomon's temple. Now think about that. Do you think they were doing some comparing? You better believe they were. And when we get to Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we can see what they thought. Look at this. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Some of the old men saw that, and they thought, this is not going to be what I remembered when I was a child. And my children and my grandchildren, when they come for the feasts, when they come for peace offerings, when the burnt offerings are offered, when we visit the city, when we live around the city, they're not going to get to see the glory that I saw. This is when Haggai and Zechariah step in. They notice the same spirit. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, prophet Zechariah asks, Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. If you've despised the day of small things, what he's talking about? He's talking about the small beginnings of the second temple. You will rejoice one day, the prophet said. And Haggai also noted this in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Look at what he says. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, Solomon's temple? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He goes on, verse 4 of Haggai chapter 2. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then he makes this promise that we ended last week with in verse 9. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. This temple will be greater in glory than Solomon's temple. Now, when you study the dimensions and the physical structure of the second temple, it was not, by physical standards, more glorious than Solomon's temple. Nothing ever built in Jerusalem would ever match Solomon's temple. But Haggai was a prophet, and he wasn't just speaking about the physical temple. But later, as I pointed out last week, Jesus would come, and in John 2, he says something like, destroy this temple, and in three days, the, the Father will raise it up. And John says he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. Because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and they beheld the Father through him, and Jesus was the presence of God, and that's what a temple is. It's where God dwells. And that is the glory that was going to be brought through these people. Not all of Israel, just this remnant who returned with Zerubbabel. Through these people, God was going to bring his presence into the world in Jesus Christ. That's what Haggai saw so many centuries before the birth of Jesus. I don't know if it was through the preaching of Haggai or what, but there was a big celebra celebration. It was mixed in with the weeping. 
The priests brought out trumpets and cymbals and they sang. And this is what they sang. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. He is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And they shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Ezra chapter 3 verse 11. The celebration is so noisy, verse 13 says, that they could, it could be heard far away. But they were celebrating a little bit too early. I mean, a foundation is just a foundation, right? You don't do that when you're having a house built. You know that a lot of things can happen before you can move in. And it's just the foundation. Remember, it took them just a little while to build the altar, six months to build the foundation, but 22 years to finish the temple. So we know that problems are on the horizon. That brings us to the third phase here, rebuilding the temple. Uh, on the slide, by the way, you see the remnants of this temple that we're talking about. Now, I can't be for certain if these are the stones laid by Zerubbabel's people because uh, before, right before Jesus' time, Herod the Great came in, and one of the ways he won favor over the Jews is he added onto Zerubbabel's temple. He added quite a bit onto it and spent many years doing that rebuilding. And so it's almost like there were three temples, but most people just refer to the temple of Jesus' day as that second temple that was started by Zerubbabel. At any rate, this is the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. The, the only thing still standing after the Romans destroyed the temple in the year A.D. 70. And Jews still take pilgrimages there to pray at the wall. Uh, they'll write prayers down on pieces of paper and slip them into the cracks in the wall. And so it's a, a sacred site for Jewish people even today. It's very interesting to see that it's still standing and it's a testimony to the things we're studying uh, tonight. So Ezra is writing about events here that you need to remember occurred before his arrival in Jerusalem. Uh, just to get the date straight, this is 536, around that time, B.C. Ezra doesn't arrive till 457 B.C., so 70, 80 years before Ezra will come. So he's looking back on things that happened in the lives of people who are now dead and gone as he's writing this. And I say that to help clear up a difficulty in chapter 4. And I'm just going to point this out before I get into the nuts and bolts of what's in chapter 4. If you, if you look over there, starting in verse 6, Ezra recalls more contemporary matters that occurred in his lifetime under the Persian kings Ahasuerus, and um, Artaxerxes. Uh, the memories about something that happened in the days of Ahasuerus is in chapter 4, verse 6. And then in, chapters, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 23, he relates something that happened during his own days in the reign of Artaxerxes. And he brings these up just because they're parallels to what happened 70, 80 years before under Cyrus the Great when Zerubbabel was in Jerusalem. And so what I've done in my Bible, I don't know if you mark in your Bible, but I put brackets from chapter 4, verse 6, down to chapter 4, verse 23, to tell me that these events occurred during Ezra's lifetime. Because if you don't, you're going to get really confused with these names of kings. The king of Persia at this time is Cyrus and then Darius for, for some time. But 
In Ezra's day, it was Ahasuerus. You remember him from the book of Esther and Artaxerxes. You remember him from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, so we're going to just, to simplify things, stick to what happened during the days of Zerubbabel and skip Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 through 23. Clear as mud? Hope so. Okay, now there are some opponents that came up. What happened? Why did it take so long? Why did it lay in ruins for 16 years? Because the people got discouraged from opponents. Let's talk about who these people were. The first opponents are described in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, as the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Now, these people would later be known as the Samaritans. The, the word Samaritan wasn't used yet, but these are the people who intermarried with uh, captives that were brought in by Babylon from other countries all over the world. These are the remnants of the ten northern tribes of Israel, and they were adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. You'll see how the southern tribes... Uh, that maintain the southern kingdom, they are distinguished from these adversaries. The adversaries are basically those who would eventually become the Samaritans. On the surface, it seems like they wanted to help. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him. And the problem was, sure, they worshipped Yahweh, and they worshipped golden calves, and they worshipped all kinds of other creatures. Eventually they would build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus and the Samaritan woman have a conversation about this in John chapter 4. And so they were not being 100% authentic in what they were saying here. They knew that their brothers to the south were monotheistic. In other words, they believed in only one God and shunned idol worship. And one thing that would that brought them down and brought the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in the first place was idol worship. And if you look at the prophets that prophesied during the captivity period when they were in Babylon, you can see that there was a lot of preaching and a lot of work done to rid these people of idol worship. And they never went back to idol worship after they returned from exile. But this is why they do not want to have anything to do with these adversaries as Ezra calls them in chapter 4, verse 1. And so in verse 3, they respond, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord the God of Israel. And that may seem a little harsh, but it was based on history. They knew the history. They'd been studying it in captivity. For example, in Second Chronicles 13, Abijah, one of the kings of Judah, explains how these people's ancestors, these people, had driven out the priests of the Lord and made priests for themselves outside of the tribe of Levi. So they had a priesthood, but it wasn't according to the law of Moses. They weren't Levites. They weren't descendants of Aaron, as they were supposed to be. In 2 Kings 17, they're described as not fearing the Lord and following the law of Moses. They served idols, carved images, etc. So they weren't being true in what they were saying. They were truly adversaries. And if they had been allowed to bring their influence down, who knows, the Jews might have returned to idol worship and then all would be lost. Remember what's at stake. They're the ones who are bringing the Messiah into the world. If you read down to Ezra 4, verses 4 and 5, it shows that Zerubbabel's instincts were good in rejecting these people. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah 
and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, Cyrus's successor. So they were right to leave these opponents out. These were kinsmen, I guess you could say, because they were the, and the descendants of the northern kingdom. But there were other adversaries. So we get to chapter 5, and we're introduced to Tatanai. Tatanai, in chapter 5, verse, verses 1 and following, is described as one of the officials over the province known as Beyond the River. And we often think of which river when we hear about the river in the Old Testament books or New Testament books. Jordan River. That's not what this river is, though. Ezra's writing from the perspective of being in Persia. Beyond the river would be like west of the river Euphrates. And so he's thinking about this area east of Israel, between Israel and Babylon. Uh, we don't know exactly what province this man was over. He was probably over a small city-state, city kingdom of some kind. He was a man of relative importance. Um, he was maybe put in charge by the king of Persia, but uh, he was not a good influence either on the people. He wrote an official letter and dispatched it to Darius. Now Cyrus is no longer king of Persia. We have Darius. And he's basically, I like his name Tatanai because it sounds like tattletale. That's what he's doing. These Jews are down here building a temple. They're going to be a rival to you. Their, their ancestors were war, warlike people. They were constantly refusing to pay tribute. Uh, these people are rebelling against you. And I want you to go and look through the records of Cyrus the Great and see if they have permission to be doing this. And so Darius did it. I like the way Darius handled this, Darius king of Persia. He did some research and he found that Cyrus did indeed allow these people to go and rebuild. And here's his response according to Ezra chapter 5, verses 6 and following. This may be my favorite part of the book of Ezra. I'm not sure. It's one of my favorite parts. Uh, Ezra chapter 5. I'm sorry. We're in chapter 6 now. Ezra chapter 6, verses 6 and following. This is the response to Tadonai. Now therefore, Tadonai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Leave the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews, that's Zerubbabel, and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. So not only Tad and I are they allowed to do it, now I'm going to make you pay for it. There's more. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, follow this, verse 11. I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. So that's a pretty harsh penalty. Uh, Tad and I, we looked things up like he asked us to, found out they are supposed to be down there. And so here's what we're going to do. Because you stirred all of this up, you're going to pay for it. If you don't like paying for it, we're going to tear down your house and impale you on the beam of your house. 
So Ted and I probably regrets bringing this up. Um, he probably was impoverished by this work, but this is part of the way that, that the temple was funded. Well, we have to move on. The people were um, stalled by this. The foundation lay for 16 years untouched, and it became a reproach to the people of God. Uh, you can probably think of construction efforts that uh, you've seen around town or in other places, maybe where you grew up or other countries when you're traveling around. And it's never a good look when somebody starts building something and then they just stop for years and years and years and years. This was bringing reproach on the people of God. And so the prophets Haggai and Zechariah had to step in. And God sent them to stir the hearts of the people once more. Ezra 5, 1 and 2 says, The prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. From 536 to 520, the temple lay in ruins. Only a foundation was laid. And then in four years, they were able to finish the temple. So they got it finished in 516. It took them about 20 years, a little more or less, to finish the project. They celebrated the Passover for the first time in 50 years. And when you look at uh, the Passover feast and how the rebuilders celebrated, you see in them the characteristics that made them finish this work. You see the qualities in them that made them able to rebuild a temple. You see, in adherence to the word of God, chapter 6, verse 18, they did the Passover, they built the temple as it is written in the book of Moses. You see a zeal for the work of restoration. Just as they celebrated on the completion of the foundation, they were celebrating here, verse 22, with joy for the Lord had made them joyful. You see, faith in God, because verse 22 says that uh, the Lord turned their hearts and turn the hearts of neighboring nations to aid them in the work of reconstruction. You see, holiness, because the people separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, verses 20 and 21. And you see great courage. These people had come on a four-month journey from their homes in Babylon all the way over to Jerusalem in the face of the opposition of those adversaries, the northern kingdom, the Samaritans, and Tatanai, this fearsome ruler of the land beyond the river, and they, they prevailed because they had faith in God. They rebuilt a temple, and we're still rebuilding temples today. We need to remember that we are the temple of God. The church is the temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. The church is where God dwells. You individually as a Christian are a temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The Spirit dwells in you. And as such, we need to represent God with holiness. And there's some of us who have done that in the beginning, but like the temple in Jerusalem, we've been torn down, whether it's through rejection or fear, uh, discouragement, lack of faith, temptation. It's different for different people, but it's very common for temples to fall and to be ruined and to lay in ruins for a long, long time like the temple in Jerusalem, but they can be rebuilt. And... Maybe you are someone who needs to think about a rebuilding of a temple today. These are the qualities that will get you there. Adherence to the word of God, zeal for the work of restoration,
faith in God, holiness, and courage. That's where we'll stop. This is where the chapter on Zerubbabel ends. Next week when we come together, we'll pick up with Ezra chapter 7. We'll talk about the restoration of the law under the leadership of Ezra. And so I hope you'll be able to come back next week for that.